Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a speaker, entrepreneur, author. It's Rail Bricker. How are you doing today, Rail? Yeah, fantastic. It's uh, we're coming to you from the future, so we can tell you what's going to happen in your world. <laughs> hey, as long as it's good stuff, because I'll take it. No we're problem. excited. We're excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning, talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in South Africa. Um, often when I'm on stage here as a speaker in, in Australia, and people and I say to people, when you don't, if you can't work out my accent, then go to Perth, which is on the west coast, start swimming, and you'll find out where I came from. Uh, you may get eaten by sharks along the way, but that's kind of the, the background. So I grew up in Johannesburg in South Africa. I was actually born in a little town in the middle of the desert. I uh, lived there till I was six and then and then grew up in Johannesburg, which is obviously the largest city um, in, in South Africa. Um, got, got, went through my education there, um, got married, I had two of my kids there. And then I had, uh, and I'll come back to that part of the story, but effectively my my wife and I made a decision in 1999 to move out of South Africa. We didn't see a future for raising our kids there. And so we moved to Perth, Western Australia in 99, and we've been here ever since and having a lot of fun. Growing up in South Africa, was the culture something that was very interesting for you? Or was it hard to kind of learn about the culture and stuff there? Well, it's interesting. So as a white and I hate using racial classification, but you have to when you're talking about Africa pre or South Africa pre-1990, because um, the 11th of February 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from jail after 27 years. The 11th of February 1990 was my wedding day, separate conversation that we can have at another time. The, um, but prior to 1990 and the unbanning of the African National Congress, and the strength of the apartheid government and the control of the media, growing up as a white kid, middle class or lower middle class in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, you, you kind of knew there was this underlying endemic problem of culture in South Africa. You didn't really understand it. You know, growing up probably through my high school years, it was almost acceptable to be racist. I know that's a weird concept because inherently being from a minority myself, being Jewish, we, you know, you kind of, you kind of always had a, a leaning towards the left, but the, the societal norm was it was okay to be racist. It was okay to make disparaging comments about the black man walking down the street. So that was the culture of growing up. As I went to university where there was a massive left-wing, you know, pro-breaking down apartheid um, movement at the university, um, slowly we got much more exposed to, to the real South Africa, you know, what we never got to see. Um, uh, you know, my firm in doing engineering at, at university and actually having black classmates, not a lot, uh, it was actually quite funny. I went back to the university to meet a guy I did engineering with who's now the dean of the school when I was last consulting in South Africa. And we had they had the year photographs up on the wall. 
And so him and I were taking a trip down memory lane and walking down the passage and looking at the class photographs. And we stood there looking at this photograph and went, there wasn't a lot of gender or race diversity in our class because there was two black students and two female students of a class of 100. Okay. The rest was white male. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so, yes, to answer the question, growing up in South Africa, you, you really either had to be very exposed through your parents to the left wing, and then there was a fear of, of retribution from this very um, controlling government, right-wing government, that if you spoke out too much on the left wing, you'd disappear off to the security police. So, so, so there was this fine line that you treaded between understanding what was going on and abiding by the law, the rule of law. Growing up, did you find any passions that you had? For <clears throat> um, my passion was entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I, I started my first business um, at 14. Um, I worked for an electronics shop and these, this nice young girl came into the electronics shop and said she's bought a new radio for her car, but do I know anyone who can fit it? And me being this absolute believer in my own ability, I went, uh, yeah, no problem. Um, I'll do it. And I discovered very quickly that I should not do any job that requires me to use my hands. <laughs> okay. I, I should use my brain. And so, because I messed up her car and I had to pay for the repairs, et cetera. So I figured, but, but I always knew that I would be self-employed. Okay. So that was, that was the, yeah, uh, my, my interest, my interests are varied. I, my late father who died in 99 um, told me that one day he wants to retire with 40 years experience, not one year, 40 times over. And he told me that when I was a young teenager. And, <clears throat> and so um, that stuck with me, that I wanted different experiences. I remember leaving school and the teacher said to me, what are you going to do now? You've got nothing else to be involved with. You know, and so, and so I, you know, I've always been involved in things. I'd learned to play sport at an early age. I played it at, at, a, at a very good level. I ended up playing for the state um, two years after finishing uh, my university degree. So, yeah, those are my interests. I, 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 you know, Toastmasters, I joined at 14, and that's what really gave me my start to, to being a professional speaker today. Did you kind of not have confidence after struggling with helping that lady with her radio? Or did it kind of give you that mental reset in a way that maybe this is an opportunity to grow and learn and try this again, maybe in the future? Yeah, I know. I, interestingly, I, I lost confidence in using my own hands, but I knew that I had the mental capacity to do things with my brain. And, and so... And so yet today I have a whole shed full of power tools um, and I, you know, I carve logs with chainsaws as a hobby. Now that sounds really kind of weird, but I carve them out. My wife plants plants in them and stuff like that. So, but are they works of art? Yeah. If you define art like that, 
Are they, are they masterpieces of craftsmanship? Not at all. But do I have fun doing it? Absolutely. So, so it didn't really put me off. It just showed me a direction. You know, I was talking to my old accountancy teacher from school who lives in Sydney, Australia. And we happened to connect because her brother and I were doing some business together. And I got her number and I gave her a call. And, and we were talking about something interesting. And, and, and I said, the reason I did accountancy at school, and there was a decision made when I was 14 that I was going to do accountancy as a, a graduation subject at school, at high school, was because I knew I would never be an accountant. I know that that's a kind of weird conversation, but I knew that I'd be an entrepreneur. And I wanted to know as much as I could about accounting that I could understand how my business was going because I knew it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a corporate accountant. I think I can definitely, I can relate to that because I know with any business degree here in the States, you have to take accounting. But a lot of us, when we're doing it, we're like, we never want to be accountants unless that's our major. But I think going through that and learning, it just gives me the knowledge of numbers and what it takes to have those numbers in a business world. So I think it's definitely, I can relate that you kind of learn, you want to learn it, but you know, that's definitely not the field that you want to go in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I I had a meeting with an accountant friend who's a partner in a big firm um, earlier this week. And, And her and I were talking and saying, it's sad that accounting today is not taught the way we were taught it at school because we're the same age group. So we learn accounting at about the same time at school. And, and what I mean by that is at, at school, we were taught to do to what's called T accounts, right? You draw a T and you've got a left hand and a right hand. And as long as you put something in the left hand column and the right hand column, it all works out. Today, with accounting software, everything is what they call one-sided accounting because it sort of comes in through a bank statement and, it's mishmashed and you only post it once. And then people want to know why it doesn't reconcile. Now that gets getting very technical. But what we were talking about was that that fundamental understanding we were given at school of the basic notion of how you do accounting and how you balance the books for a business was much more valuable than what they learned today of one-sided software-based accounting. Do you think that gives you more of an advantage where you kind of have more knowledge of that than where you're talking about the nowadays that they ha- have an easy software that tells them how to do it? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, so, so I'll, I'll jump a whole lot of years. And in my, my financial services group that I own now, um, about 15 years ago, I had one of my assistants. So we had no systems. I mean, in, in, in truth, this was my second PA that I'd ever employed. And when I say PA, it was a person who processed the loans. So I would go out, see clients, come back with the paperwork, hand it to one of my staff, and they would process the loan, deal with the bank, etc. And she had this pile of files on her desk, about 40 files. And the joke was, if that pile fell to the floor, she would resign before it hit the ground. That was what she always said. <clears throat> but, but, what came out of that was I watched her workflow and she would look at the files and go, yeah, this one's too hard and put it on the bottom of the pile and go, oh, this one's easy. I'll deal with this one today. And so the hard files were being pushed to the bottom of the pile because there was no systematizing it. Right. And so again, one of these, I often have revelations at three o'clock in the morning 
that sounds kind of spiritual and you know, whatever, but no, it's going to do that just because that's the way I am. I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea. So I came up with this idea called Monday to Friday. So I walked in on the next Monday morning and I said, right, those 40 files, we're going to sort them into five piles of eight. And we're going to work your workflow out between five days of the week, Monday to Friday. And you're going to open this file. It's called, it's, it's Alex's file. Here it is. Okay. Picking on you. And you're going to go, I'm going to call the bank today. And the bank says, I'll give you an answer on Wednesday. You're going to go to the whiteboard up next to your desk that has five columns on it. And you're going to write under, under Wednesday, Alex, and physically take that file and put it on a shelf marked Wednesday. Now it's out of your vision. It's out of your workflow. Now you come in in the morning, once the system's working, you only have eight files. The workload is not insurmountable. And I know that they're getting through all eight. And so th this was my own design. I call it the Monday to Friday system. Today, we still use it. Every one of my team members, and, and that business has done 3 billion in mortgages, still has a whiteboard next to their desk with every client's name on it in the column of the day that they have to work on it. And so going back to that basic accounting understanding, it took a while to work out this very, very simple system. And I, I talk to young brokers today and they go, yeah, I've got a CRM system and I put a task in and the task pops up and wins. Great. But if I'm the manager or the owner of this business and I want to walk in and, and, and review stuff with my staff, I go, John Smith's file, and they'll go, yeah, it's on Wednesday. They'll go pull out a physical file, and we'll talk about it. Um, it's, it's a very simple, easy-to-use system. And I, as the manager, can also manage their workflow. I can go, your board's looking a bit empty. I should allocate some more work to you now. And so very simple, very – in fact, Kaizen Management talks about something called visual management you know, in, 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 the, in the Kaizen principles. And I, and I had a Kaizen specialist come and try and sell me Kaizen systems for my office. And I said, great. And he spoke about this visual management. And I said, come with me. Let's go and have a look at the boards. He went, okay, you've got it. We don't need to talk about it any further. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't by design. That's, for your listeners, the truth of it is, you know, rising to the challenge of how do I deal with my staff member who's got these 40 files on a desk. <clears throat> That's the first challenge. But the second channel is almost related to running up a hill. I'm, I've been a sportsman my whole life. I've had lots and lots of injuries, but I played at state level. And so when I was running to keep fit for my other sports, I was always told when you got to a hill, don't look at the top of the hill, look at your feet. And each step that you take up the hill, you're just watching your feet going up the hill and eventually you're on top of the hill. And so I applied that same principle to managing my staff's workflow. That pile of 40 files was like a hill. And all they were doing was seeing the size of the pile. But when there's only eight on their desk, they're almost at the top of the mountain. I like that strategy because I think people can utilize that in how they schedule, like they have to accomplish all this in a week and how do they break it down to make sure that at the end of the week, 
they accomplish everything. And it's the same way that you're doing with your staff is they take that pile of papers or uh, clients and they break it down and how are they going to complete it in that week? I mean, I, I spoke at the Agile conference. As a professional speaker, I happened to open the Agile Scrum in Nepal in Kathmandu, which was a pretty cool place to go because you get to see sunrise over Everest the next day. It's, uh, you know, part of the experience of being a, a professional speaker around the world. But I opened the conference for the Agile Scrum for Southeast Asia, the Agile Alliance, Agile Scrum. And what was interesting was I didn't understand the, truly the Agile process till I spent three days at this conference listening to the speakers talking about applying Agile techniques in their business and, and, and in their workflow. And that's exactly what it is. Agile as a principle is that, you know, you, you, you break your tasks down into daily tasks and you're accountable for those daily tasks. So it's not mm -hmm. go off to the mountain and program and write code for three months. It's, it's, we stand around, we have our coffee in the morning, we have our 10 minute scrum, you define, this is my task for today. And you break it down into, in their business, in, in most of them, we're talking about daily, daily increments. And so it's exactly the same process. It's about simplifying our lives. Our lives are too complicated. Google has made our life simpler and incredibly complicated. Because, yeah. you know, you can go on to Google, which is interesting. There was a movie years ago, and one of the throwaway lines from the movie, I can't remember which movie it was, was Google is not a synonym for research. Okay. Um, and, and so, but I remember that, that line came out of that movie and that's the problem is, you know, everyone's now a doctor because they, 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 they put their <laughs> symptoms in, they, the Google tells them what they have. And then they go to the doctor and say, I have this, which already predisposes the doctor to the wrong diagnosis because you're not relying on the expertise of the person standing in front of you. Or Google tells you a completely opposite thing and you freak out like, oh, you have this. And you're like, I don't want to have that at all. <laughs> but you're yeah, so, no, it's absolutely. so true. Yeah. It's, it's like, especially at my age with being younger and going with college, we always use Google. No one uses the library anymore. Like we don't, we go to what's the easiest way to accomplish something. And it's always Google. Like Google has the answers, but like this is, you can't, it's like Wikipedia. You can't trust Wikipedia because anyone can change anything on there. And you see the stories and the images of what people have written and replaced to the actual facts. And it's so true. Like Google is a good thing and a bad thing, but like you said, exactly how you have placed it. Well, if you, if you study business, okay, so and, and there was a, there's a theory of stock markets in business called the random walk theory, right, from, from in, in economics. It basically says the share price today or the, stock, the price of the stock today is yesterday plus a random number. And that's based on the fact that, that you have um, um, not perfect information in the market. In other words, imperfect information and that some people interpret that imperfect information in one way. 
mm-hmm. and others interpret another way, and therefore you have your buyers and your sellers. So that's the that's the theory of 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 of, of re- the random walk theory. I I looked at a PhD a few years ago that I never ended up finishing, or my own PhD, where I wanted to prove that we'd gone from a period of imperfect information sometime pre-1990, let's call it. You know, anything pre-1990 was imperfect information. Through a time where we somehow hit a, a pendulum balance of perfect information and we've swung the other way now to an overload of information which makes the information imperfect again. Okay, because if you Google something, you will get 20 pages of information 19 of which are not relevant, but you may interpret them as not relevant where someone else may interpret them as relevant. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, so my idea was to try and find that spot in the world where information became perfect. And I don't know if it ever existed properly, but, but that's exactly the challenge we have today is, you know, I, I run the financial services group. I, I spend 50% of my time in that business. And clients will come in and go, I was on Google last night and ABC Bank is offering this and this and this. I'll go, great, but you don't qualify for that bank. But 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 I went onto their website and it said I could get this. I'm going, yeah, but I'm telling you from 20 years and $3 billion experience, you don't qualify for it, okay? <laughs> and so so half the time we're fighting prejudice because people going oh brokers get paid a commission and that's going to prejudice their decisions which is all nonsense because every bank happens to pay us exactly the same commission so how can it prejudice a decision but more importantly they are so driven by google and by you know over information or misinformation they interpret marketing information as gospel you mentioned a little bit earlier that after, I guess, after college, um, you became or you were an athlete. Talk about that journey and the challenges and the pauses that came from it. Well, so I grew up. I'm 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 five foot six and built big. I have a big frame, and um, actually, at school, I'll start at school. At school, we had two choices as boys. You had to play a sport. Um, you either played rugby or hockey, or and, and hockey being field hockey, not ice hockey, just to for your for your American listeners. Okay, <laughs> um, we don't have a lot of ice in Johannesburg. Okay, there was one ice hockey stadium in Johannesburg, like that was the extent of ice hockey. Um, anyway, I took up hockey, and I and I found I had a reasonable talent. I was. What they would call in in cycling terms a domestique. In other words, I could play as part of a team and I could contribute extensively as part of a team, but I was never the 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 Lionel Messi, you know, of, of Barcelona. I was never the person scoring all the goals. I was a midfield player, generally a defensive midfield player, and that was what I did. And and I and I discovered that halfway through high school I was playing in the in in the team that represented my high school, the A the A team of my high school, and I was playing at a at a club level, and, and I kind of enjoyed it. 
I went off to university, still played. And then when I moved out to work on the mine, so I moved 250 kilometers from Johannesburg. I worked underground on a mine for two years and I got selected for the state. It was a different state that the mine was in from, from Johannesburg. And I got selected for that state team at the time. But always understanding that my role was that domestic. That, and it's an interesting thing from an ego point of view, because everyone wants to be the star, particularly when you're playing at a, at a reasonably high level. And to actually understand that in my entire state-level hockey career, I never scored one goal because of my defensive midfield position, I was quite happy with that. Um, I then broke my kneecap and, and didn't play for a number of years. And I started playing again when I was 50. And I'm 57 now. And it's interesting. When I was talking to the captain of my team the other day, and I said, it's, it's been a fascinating journey coming back to being a team member after 27 years of not playing. Because everything I did prior was, you know, in the last 27 years was individual sport. It was triathlons, it was cycling, it was all those things I could do myself. None of it was, um, none of it was, was team-based. And, and coming back into a team, and I said to him, I don't care as a defensive player if, um, if I don't touch the ball once during a game, but I make sure that their attacking player doesn't get the ball. That doesn't worry me. And so that's what being a team member at a reasonably high level is all about. You know, I got my first experience watching field hockey with the Olympics, the last few Olympics. But you talked about something huge that a lot of people need to understand is each person on a team plays a huge role and you need that person to participate to make every other position work smoothly and transitionally. And I think a lot of people go into the sports and they're like, oh no, I want to be the athlete. I want to do the part that it makes people aware of them. And I got that experience playing soccer. And I was like, I want to be scoring. I don't want to be on the defense, but I was like you, I'm going to do anything I can to make sure that the other team's not going to score. And my coach was like, you play a big role. Just because you're not scoring doesn't mean you're not playing a role that's going to be out there. But it's interesting that you talked about coming into that role as a, hockey, a field hockey player, years difference from being playing at a state level to where you are today. And it shows that you have the passion to still do it at no matter what age level. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thing that we, at, at the club I play for now, there are, well, in the league in Perth, there are, in the over 50 veterans, I call it, and veteran has a different meaning here to the US, which is veteran refers to military. Veterans here just means we're old guys um, and girls. But in the veterans league, there would be, in Perth, 25 to 30 teams maybe, maybe even more than that, over 50s and probably the same number of over 60s teams. So it's a remarkable sport that people can continue playing, you know, their whole lives. And and I think being part of a team is quite amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes my wife 
I'll come back from hockey and I'll be bruised and battered and, and whatever. And my wife will go, really, do you need to be playing this? And then on Saturday, she came out to watch the game. Um, it was our last home game for the season. And she came home and said she actually understands why I play. And so that was quite a, you know, it was quite a good thing. It means I get to play next season. <laughs> you had to get her approval to do it. Yeah. yeah. After 31 years of marriage, yep, you get the approval. <laughs> do you ever worry about injuries at your age playing or it's just part of the sport playing it even no matter what age it could happen? Oh, yeah. It's, it's this season I've missed seven weeks because I tore a hamstring. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it happens every second or third season. I'll do something to myself. Um, and I'll miss, you know, a couple of weeks of the season, but that's also a sign of the passion of committing, you know, you, you can't, you play soccer, you can't go half into a tackle cause you'll actually get more injured. Mm-hmm. You've either got to commit or not commit. Um, you know, and, and I'll go back to, to, to rising to the challenge, which is the theme of your podcast. The person sitting listening to this going, oh, I'm in a job, but I really want to be the entrepreneur. I want to go out there and live on the edge and whatever. The first step to doing that is committing. It might be committing to going from a five-day week to a three-day week in the job and cutting your income by 40%. But it's the way you're going to commit to getting out there in the world, right? So it's exactly the same thing as a tackle in any sport. You watch, you know, American football, you watch, you know, you know, gridiron, you know, you watch any sport. They don't go into a tackle half-hearted. No. Okay. And it's exactly the same analogy for entrepreneurs. You've got to go in and dive in. I mean, my book that I published in 2018 is called Dive In. And 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 the the back of the book says quite simply: business is not complicated, business is simple. You just have to dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. And, and that's exactly what it's about. It's about that just committing and doing it. And if you get it wrong in business, so what? If you get it wrong and you miss the tackle, you dive to go, well, right? You know, you don't really dive in hockey but, and in <laughs> soccer, but, you know, maybe in gridiron, you know, but you dive to tackle somebody and you miss them completely and everyone in the stands laughs because you missed them. You pick yourself up, you shake yourself off, and you go, I'll do it next time. That's what business is about, too. You talked about you needed the change from South Africa to coming to Australia because you wanted to find a better place to raise your children. Have you had the the success, and have they realized that you guys made the right decision in moving? Are my kids today? In fact, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my third child was born in Australia. Um, my kids absolutely appreciated where we grew up. Perth, when we moved here, was about 1.1 million people. It's now just over 2 million people. Um, it has 60 kilometers of, of Indian Ocean beachfront, um, which is beautiful beaches. Uh, we just live in a beautiful place. Our house is 15 minutes from the beach. My office is five minutes from the beach. Um, we are on the river. It's just a, it's a, it's a pretty place to grow up, but it was a nice environment where, where the kids felt safe doing a lot of things. And my girls are 28 and or 28 this year and 25 this year. 
they felt safe doing things in Perth. Um, did I see, I, what I saw was that South Africa would eventually go the way of Africa, the way of the rest of Africa, which was going from first world to third world. And from talking to friends who still live there now, it's very much heading in that direction. Um, the, the, the world has changed. And I had, <clears throat> I had been successful in business already. Um, in 1990, we started an education business by coincidence. And that's part of the message I give to entrepreneurs today. Is So my, my business partner and I, I had just finished my MBA. I've got two master's degrees for for want of background, I have a master's in engineering, of software engineering, and an MBA, which I did simultaneously um, for my sins. My wife and I fought a lot those two years because I was under a little stress. Anyway, I graduated from my MBA. I was in a job as a marketing manager of a software business. My business partner, Jonathan, um, at the time, future business partner, he was in a corporate job. We were both earning decent salaries. We could have just lived our lives on salary. But both of us had this real burning entrepreneurial spirit. Six months after we got married, I turned around to my wife and I said, I'm going to follow my entrepreneurial dream. She was a teacher working full time. She said, if you don't do it, you're going to be frustrated. Go for it. So I did. So we started a consultancy. Now, we were 25 or 26-year-old young MBA graduates from business school we thought we could teach the world how to run their businesses. Great theory, practical impossibility because we'd never run a business ourselves. But that didn't stop us. And, and I think when I talk to entrepreneurs today, they go, oh, I don't have enough. I'm just going to do one more course. I'm just going to learn one more thing. They're not, they're not committed enough to just go, let's do it. You know, uh, Richard Branson's book, you know, screw it, let's do it. That, that's mm -hmm. exactly what the book is called. It, it, it's the same thing. And so we started this consultancy. Um, we pitched to a number of corporations. We actually won a contract, bizarrely, with the electro, one of the big electricity supply companies to develop some training courses for them. So we started off doing that. We did the first module of 10, and then they decided, oh, they were going to cancel all consultants working for them because – they were losing money or something. So they canceled our contract and we sat there going, we've given up our jobs. We've bought a computer, computers. They were expensive in those days. You know, printing, photocopier, blah, blah, blah. What the hell are we going to do now? And an organization called the Institute of Marketing Management said, you guys are so well qualified. Why don't you start a college teaching our diploma? And so I've got to use the right words for America. College is not university. Um, in South Africa at the time, you had universities, you had um, what they called technicons or diploma issuing institutions, and then you had technical colleges where people went to learn a trade, plumber, electrician, etc. So this sat in that middle section, it was sort of the, the, the um, business diplomas, um, the marketing diploma, it was equivalent to a degree, but not quite, let's let put it that way. So we said, yeah, what have we got to lose? We started advertising. We got 20 students in the second semester of 1990. Um, and then we knew we were onto something. We had no premises. We worked out of my partner's house. People would come and sign up at his house and walk around the garden to get to the front door. And his Labradors had left little piles of stuff all over the garden. <laughs> we were totally 
but it didn't worry us. It did. We didn't. We didn't even see that. We just saw past it. Anyway, th- that grew dramatically. We started in 1990. By 1996, we had grown to six campuses, 4,000 students, and um, owned a 50,000 square foot building in downtown Johannesburg. So. At that point, for whatever, the, the political tide was changing in South Africa. Um, there was a lot of violence, a lot of um, anti-white sentiment, which I understand because the apartheid government. And, you know, you asked me about that at the start. You know, as a, as a white minority in South Africa, there was this mid-90s, uh, mid this very big upsurge in violence. And, and so we made a decision was post, it was the democratic government was elected. Nelson Mandela was president, but there was still this massive violent surge in, in, in South Africa. And so Jonathan and I found a listed shell. We reversed into that listed shell. It wasn't really a shell. It had a small business running, but we reversed our business into theirs, went and did mergers and acquisitions and grew them from a 90 cent share to a 14 rand share. So 90 cents to $14, you know, so massive growth over 18 months. My contract was up and then I left them. That was that I walked away and then that went on the next phase of my life. But but that experience of growing rapidly, of building, of going from you know zero to 160 staff over that five-year period taught me a lot about the practicalities of business, but also taught me that nothing is impossible. That and you mustn't overthink things. You know, you don't, you know, we'd go, we went down to a new city, to Durban, to open our first campus there. We found premises. We went, we'll sign a lease for a year. What's the worst case? We'll pay the rent for a year on empty premises. It was money. It had nothing to do with anything else. So we just said, yeah, let's do that. And got 50 students and it was viable. And we found a staff member to run the place for us, you know. So we did things a little backwards sometimes without too much thought. And I'm not saying dive into everything, not chase next shiny object. That's not what I'm talking about. You do give it some thought, mm-hmm. but at some point you have to make a decision to cross the line. Does it kind of go back to when we were talking about your athletic journey where you kind of have to commit to it and you can't just half do it. But if you have that passion, you got to go for it because you don't want to look back and say, I wish I did it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I I meet too many people now in my own age group who said, if only. And, and, and you never want to live with regrets. You know, life is too short. Life is too precious. And if nothing else, the pandemic of 2020 and 2021 has taught us how precious life actually is and that you have to live your life. You know, you know, you can't. And, and I'll put that into context of the pandemic. I'm not talking about getting out there and saying we're not going to wear masks and we're not going to get vaccinated and all these other things. And that's not an anti-vaxxer or vaxxer comment. It's a, you live your life with purpose, Mm -hmm. but you, you actually have to understand that you can't live with regret. You know, so you make a business decision rightly or wrongly, you've made a decision. There's nothing worse than inertia. If you've got inertia, you'll never move. As a speaker, what's the main mission you're hoping that someone listening to you gets out of your speaking gigs? So I, I talk about culture. You asked that question right up front, and it happens to be um, 
on the, and that's a real backdrop behind me because people can see the video. These are real things behind me. It's not just a fake background. Um, I talk about culture, leadership, and strategy and the intersection between them. Okay. And, and the intersectionality of them. So the fact that, that I believe culture is the driver of every organization that, 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 and, and you have to do culture by design. You know, a lot of people evolve their culture and it's not a good culture. And so you have to actually think about what you're doing to develop a culture and organization. But part of that is you need leadership and you need strategy. Mm -hmm. And so when I stand on stage and I talk about, you know, one of my, one of my keynote topics is that the, 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 that, that if culture really ate strategy for breakfast, what's for dinner? You know, where's the future going? And I talk about that intersectionality of, of, of developing a culture, but having leadership and leadership skills and a strategy. And if you don't have one of those three components, then, you, you know, you're, you, you're, you're not moving in the right direction. So that's, that from a, that, that's in a broad sense. On a very specific sense, what drives me as a speaker on stage and sometimes if you've got the lights on, you can't see people's eyes, which is problematic. But I like to always say, I want to see the lights come on in people's eyes. I want to see people get it. I want to see them nodding and saying, yep, I've got it. And in and, and the last, the, the two years of the pandemic has been amazing for me in a lot of ways. And it, I haven't been on a lot of big stages because no one's been on a lot of big stages around the world. But I actually built a classroom and started doing small business academies, 14, month, 14 session, 14 weeks um, academy. It, it, it's, it's called the Excellence Academy. And what was amazing to me through that and then follow that with a mastermind for 12 months was the transformation I saw. And, and I'm talking of like self-fulfillment, really seeing change in these people that were doing my program and then being part of this mastermind and sharing and growing that mm -hmm. was actually although it wasn't as financially fulfilling as standing on a stage for 45 minutes it was much more fulfilling for the soul because i got to see real change in people you know and so so what i want as a speaker i want people to develop rich and robust cultures and, and, and as an aside, I have tools that can actually measure culture, not measure uh, employee engagement or customers. I can actually measure culture and put a number on it. I have specific proprietary tools. And, but I want them to develop rich and robust cultures with measurable results. No point in not being able to measure it at the end of the day. Comparing your entrepreneurial journey and your speaking journey, which one do you prefer? For that you get the most joy out of or do you feel that each part gets a certain joy and it gets the most satisfaction out of it um i enjoy them i mean i as i mentioned previously i my father took me, my late father took me to toastmasters he was a toastmaster and i went to toastmasters when i was 14 and and so at 20 i won the south african championship so I've always enjoyed speaking. I've always enjoyed being on stage. My financial services business, very entrepreneurial, started from my lounge room, has done three billion in the 20 years that I've owned it. A billion of that three billion 
was me being on stage as a speaker, talking to audiences about finance, about retirement, about organizing their mortgages. So they very the, the journeys are very intertwined. Um, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. I love the fact that that my kids have I've been there for my kids through everything. I've been to all their school plays and their school functions and. As a, as a board member at the kids' school, and I'm still on the board after 20 years, um, I can attend a lot of the official functions on behalf of the board because I'm master of my own destiny. I don't have to be at an office at a certain time. So that, for me, has been part of the, the enjoyment of that entrepreneurial journey. In 2013 or late 2012, I was doing a series of triathlons. Again, very individual sport, that. And um, after the season, I decided to learn how to, I was going to train to do a marathon and I kept getting neck pain. And my mother-in-law, who is amazing, looked at me one day and said, you're gray, go and see a doctor. So I did. And they discovered that I had two blocked arteries and um, late, uh, early 2013, I ended up with two cardiac stents. I dodged a bullet. I didn't have a heart attack, thankfully. And today I'm fit, probably fitter and stronger than I was seven years ago. And that was what prompted me to go back to playing hockey because I had a passion for that. But why that story? Because it was about the same time that I saw my own mortality at age 49 and went, you know what? I need to pursue my passion. My passion is being on stage. And I want to shift that passion from talking about finance and mortgages and building retirement. And, and I I've lost count of the number of millionaires, property millionaires that I've created over the 20 years. So I've had amazing success on other people's journeys. But I really wanted to talk to people about how to build a business. What drives me as an entrepreneur? And it took me from that time to, to really make that transition. My first speaking events were 2015, where I spoke about building businesses 2016, I joined Professional Speakers Australia. 2019, I got my CSP, which is a worldwide designation of Certified Speaking Professional. And there are only about 1,500 CSPs in the world. So, um, yeah, it, it, I enjoy both parts of it. I'm very much still involved in the financial services group. I still see clients. And, in fact, someone asked me the other day, where do you get your clients from? And I said, I've been the last three months have been amazing because most of the clients I've seen have been children or grandchildren of my existing clients. Wow. Like the, you know, after 20 years, I'm starting to see the children and the grandchildren of clients. And that's also an amazing thing for me is that I can build those long-term relationships with people's families and be a part of them. Like, you know, you know, the, the doctor, the dentist and their finance broker, you know, that's the, the relationship. What does the future look like for you personally and professionally? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years? Um, I'd love to get back to traveling. <laughs> um, as much as sometimes, you know, this is, I'm in a studio now. Um, there are, I'm only talking on one camera and, and one feed to you, but there are five computers in front of me, four different cameras, different feeds, different setups, a, an audio desk, a video desk. And I've done a lot of keynoting and workshops from standing in this spot over the last, uh, you know, two years or 18 months of the pandemic. 
but there's nothing that replaces warm bodies. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing replaces that, that feedback you get from people's faces in a room. You know, you only see so much on screen. You see them waste. That is why I stand when I present on, on camera. It's because you get to see my whole body, my energy, my arms. Friends always tell me I tell fishing stories because my hands are always out like this, right? Telling <laughs> fishing stories. Okay. Um, so what's the future? I mean, I want to get back to doing some international speaking again. Um, that's part of it. I just enjoy the experiential part of that. Not, and I love sharing my story and my passion for culture, leadership, and strategy and, and giving people actionable plans that they can put in place. And I love seeing that growth, but I also love just seeing different places in the world. And as I said, in 2019, I got to see the sunrise over Everest when I was in Kathmandu in Nepal. So, so you know, it's part of that experience. You know, what I want for my life now, My two of my kids are, are busy doing their master's degrees. They combined, they're trying to catch up with their father who has two master's. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but I'm very proud of my kids. I want to spend time with my kids. They both live in different cities to me. One lives in, in, in the Middle East, in Israel. Um, my one lives in Melbourne and I'm in Perth and my son is finishing school this year and where he ends up, I don't know. The entrepreneur life is about that freedom to travel, to see my kids. My, my, my mother lives in Canada. So 12 hour time shift from me. Um, I want to get back to Canada. I haven't been there for two years. So for me, that's what the future holds personally. And professionally, I try and tie in speaking geeks around the world with that. So that, you know, even if I'm not making a profit after paying, you know, everything for my travels, it's paying for me to go to these places and have these experiences in my life. Um, and there's always new business opportunities starting up. So, you know, launched my own podcast um, a year ago. Um, that's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing that. Um, it, it, those are the things. And I'm currently president of Professional Speakers Australia in our state. And I've enjoyed my year as president because it's been about the education and, uh, of my fellow peers. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? So I'm going to give you two, okay, if you don't mind. All right. Oh, yeah. So the first is, is, is a chapter in my book. And for your listeners, I will give you a link. You can, uh, I'll, I'll tell them the link, but you can put it in the show notes. Um, they can download a free copy of my book, Dive In, okay, uh, a PDF version of the book. But one of the chapters in the book is called Give Up Control to Gain Control. And as you start or go on this entrepreneurial journey, you, you need to be able to understand what you're good at. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not talking about going to the psychiatrist and spending months on the couch trying to work that out. I'm saying inherently when you start a business and you're doing everything, you're doing everything from making the coffee to talking to the customers to packing goods in the warehouse to taking them down to the post office to go and post them to the customer. You're doing all that. And you have to work out what is your skill? Is your skill the sales? Is your skill the organization? What is your skill? What is, what is your superpower? And, and I do a lot of work one-on-one with entrepreneurs to work that out. What is their superpower? Once you know what your superpower is, 
give up control of everything else, know how to do it so you can train people to do it, but give up control because that frees you up to use your superpower more and more. So that we entrepreneurs are control freaks, right? Everyone's a control freak. We, we know how to do everything and we don't trust anyone to do it because they're not going to do as well as we can. So give up control of the day-to-day stuff that you don't need to do to gain control of your life. And, and then your business can grow because you can do the revenue generation and get people to do the admin that you don't want to do. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is about setting goals. You know, the traditional goal setting that we talk about, and I, I run seminars on this, right? And, 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 and half-day workshops and that kind of stuff. And it's part of my academy program, et cetera. When you set goals traditionally, if you read a lot of the, the guys who talk about goal setting, they'll tell you to write them on little sticky notes. What do they do before sticky notes? I didn't know. But anyway, <laughs> write, write it on these sticky notes and stick them on your mirror. And when you shave in the morning or you're doing your makeup in the morning and you see your goals in front of you, they become real and you can, you know, whatever. I disagree with that completely because those goals are standalone. You know, you know, it's like when you get to the top of the mountain, what do you do then? Because you've now got the top of the mountain and you're going, okay, where do I go from here? Mm-hmm. Those goals are standalone. So the techniques that I teach people, and I'm going to do it in 30 seconds, but it's a, a much longer process, is about a visualization technique where I say to them, forget about goals right now. Visualize where you want to be in three months time or six months or 12 months time. Not not where in, in an esoteric level, a physical thing. You're at Nobu in New York or you know, you're at, you're at Disney World or you're at, in the Bahamas at the, at the swim-up bar at the pool having a cocktail, whatever it is. doesn't matter what you're – but you get the image in your head already of where you want to be, right? Who are you with? So your loved ones, your team, your, your business partner, your newest client, doesn't matter. Who are you with? What are you doing? So you're drinking champagne, you're having a dinner, you're whatever, right? Um, and then you get to the why. Why? So you've only got you've got the you only get to the why right at the end, which is why you're there because you got two hundred new clients or you landed that big client, whatever. Now, your goal is driven somewhat by the reward but also this absolute visualization because the brain can't distinguish between imagined reality and reality. So if you're training your brain to see yourself having that celebration, mm-hmm. the goal becomes much easier to achieve. And so the, it's a whole technique and I can, I'm happy to engage with people one-on-one because it's a much more complicated process than I've just described, but that's the process you go through. To, to basically reprogram your reticular activating system in your brain to visualize your reward. Well, Rail, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future has for you. Thank you very much. And as I said, I will send you the, the link um, off the railbricker.com website and they can download a free copy of my book and engage with me, you know, in any of those areas that we've covered. And there's lots more that we haven't even sort of 
dug into because we've been on a on an interesting sort of round trip journey today. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.